Hey everybody, it's Drew from Sleep With Me, and I'm believe it or not, I'm live here uh, from Golden Gate Park, recorded live, uh, and I've got a little announcement. We're teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you two exclusive episodes. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlist clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. Each playlist has its own topic or theme. You could try out the Music Decoded playlist with clips all about unpacking and analyzing music, uh, or Slice of Life, which is all about the crazy or incredible things that happen to everyday people. Also, Spoke has fun, exclusive content from Farrell. And that's why I'm here live at Golden Gate Park. I just concluded uh, recording one of these episodes that's only going to be available exclusively on Spoke. I'm lying here in the grass. Uh, you definitely do not want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Sleep With Me's exclusive Spoke episodes. You can find them all at Spoke.com slash sleep with me that's spoke.com slash sleep with me check it out uh and i'll see you in golden gate park at stowe lake bye guys finding quality denim jeans is tough and to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh almost impossible but at distilled spelled d-s-t-l-d you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use a promo code FERAL and check out and get it a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super-duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. And I'm saying this really fast because it's urgent. It's urgent that I get you to know that this show is called Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Can you hear my dog crunching on his food? Yeah, that was my dog eating his food as I record this. Hey, he's pure love and I need him in my life. Uh, if you haven't listened to the show before, it is just what the title implies. It's a conversation with me. I strive for a sort of free-formed type of uh, approach instead of a question-and-answer, stiff, boring thing. Uh, so there you go. If you like my theme music, that's by a band called Les Blanks. Go to lesblanks.com. Check them out. Uh, and uh, this is... I'm really excited about this week's episode. I have uh, one of my early guests, uh, first guests on, Dan Kavalik, uh, who was one of the lawyers that sued Coca-Cola. He's a human and labor rights lawyer. <laughs> Couldn't get that out there. Couldn't get it out. But uh, he's a great guy. He's also a social critic, writes on Huffington Post and counterpunch.org. And he was down in Venezuela observing the elections there 
And he has some very insightful things to say about that, as well as uh, we talk about the genocide that's been going on in the Congo, which does not get much press. And uh, Dan Kabalik proves, once again, why he's one of my favorite people to have on the show, because he's insightful and cool, etc., etc. We did record this four or five days after the Boston bombing, which we discuss a little bit, Uh, So, but it's obviously some things have developed within that the week since that uh, he and I talked so uh, that way you know that going into this like we're not two dudes living in a time warp so uh, please listen to Mr. Dan Kavalik and I talk about the world So that it's pretty exciting that you were down in Venezuela observing the elections. Yes, it was it was very exciting, and of course more exciting than I had anticipated, given the close results. Um, there there are about 170, at least that I know of, international observers there. Um, as far as flung is from Ethiopia, Sri Lanka, South Korea. It was incredible. I mean, it was just it was very moving. Um, why uh, was there a huge difference in what you saw going on down there than how it was represented in the media in the United States? Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, what I saw was a very good electoral system, very uniform. You know, unlike our country, where each state can kind of pick its voting mechanism, and you know. If you're going to paper ballot and electronic ballot, whatever, there they have 23 states, but they all use the same system. And if if if, if you um, are interested, I could tell you you know how the system works because I think uh, it's a pretty uh, pretty solid system. In fact, Jimmy Carter, I will note, last year called it the most uh, the best electoral system in the world. And it actually would be an envy of a lot of Republicans here because it, it actually uh, – the ID requirements are pretty tight because they're based on fingerprints. And so when you go into the voting – the polling place, you have a voter ID, but you also – which has your fingerprint on it. But then you put your fingerprint down onto a machine, and it reads your fingerprint to verify that you're the person you know, that belongs to that ID. And then when they do that, then you're sent to a second machine, of course, that's not connected to the first because, you know, it is a secret battle election. Then you go to this other machine and there's this giant ballot there with the faces, pictures of of the candidates. So you could be, frankly, illiterate and, and know how to how to do it. They should have that here. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But, you know, I mean, in a country, you know, poorer country where there is significant illiteracy, though a lot less, frankly, than, you know, before Chavez uh, became president. And I should note that because he is he's uh, largely eradicated uh, liter- illiteracy, but not not totally. But in any case, so then you, you, you press a button on the photo that you want to vote for, and it will electronically registers that vote. And then it prints out a receipt that says, not you know, at least in Pennsylvania, I get a receipt that says I voted, you know, congratulations, you voted or something. And then I take that with me. But here it actually says, you know, that you voted for whoever, Maduro or Caprillus. 
And then you put that piece of paper, obviously it doesn't have your name on it, but you take that piece of paper and you put it in the ballot box. And so what you have then are electronic votes, and those are sent into the national system at the end of the day. They they call those in. But then you have paper receipts so that you can actually you can actually verify the electronic votes with the paper receipts. And they actually and this has not been in the press much by law, they randomly audit fifty four percent of all the votes on election day, making sure that the paper ballots match up with the electronic votes. And in fact, I witnessed one of these audits um, at a local polling place in Caracas, and it matched up perfectly. You know, they actually very meticulously, in front of, by the way, witnesses from both parties. So witnesses from both parties stand there and they count one for Maduro, one for Caprillus, one for Maduro, you know, and they make sure that the electronic votes that were sent into the national system match up with with the paper there. That's really. Intense. It's it's very strange that with such a meticulous a, a, approach to a voting that they are becoming that the U.S. is criticizing them because we had the whole Gore uh, Bush debacle, which you know I mean it's like it's completely perplexing to me. Well, exactly, and Bush Gore is, is a perfect example because they are first of all. Uh, is we know Bush did not get the popular vote. He lost the popular vote. But, of course, we have an electoral system, which all came down to Florida. And in Florida, the, the, the you know candidates, if you recall, were divided by at most 500-some votes, 500. In Venezuela, the candidates were, are divided by about 275,000 votes. I mean, that's not a lot, but it's not it's not a little. I mean, it's a fairly comfortable lead, especially given that 54% of all the votes have been audited. And by the way, uh, I just saw the news last night that the Venezuelan Electoral Commission has agreed to audit the remaining 46%. So, you know... Yeah, compared to our system, especially when you look at things like uh, Gore versus Bush, or if you look at Kennedy versus Nixon, which was decided by 0.1% of the vote, it looks like a pretty comfortable margin in a very good system. And so it makes you, you know, to me it's very clear that the U.S. issue is not with the system, it's with the outcome. They don't like the guy... You know, it's they don't like the guy who was elected. And by the way, if Caprillus had won by one vote, we wouldn't be having this discussion. They'd recognize immediately. Now, what is their motive for not recognizing this? Just because they want to get their the, the get into that oil and whatever else? Yeah, well, I think there's I think there's kind of that's certainly one issue. I mean, that Venezuela is sitting on you know one of the largest oil reserves in in the world, and it's been nationalized, fully nationalized, which the U.S. doesn't like because we still get the oil. By the way, as Chomsky notes, it's not that we don't have access to it; to it. we can buy it. That's not a problem. But what we can't do is profit from it. The Venezuelans are profiting from it. We don't like that, and you know we've toppled regimes. In the past, who've nationalized oil, for example, Mossadegh in, in Iran in 1953. Um, so that's a big issue. But then there's a, a more, prof, you know, a, a bigger issue, and that is that Venezuela has led the region 
in breaking free of the U.S. economically and politically. And so it has been able to help other countries like Nicaragua, like Bolivia, like Ecuador, like Cuba, uh, either become or stay independent of the U.S. And that is the bigger threat. Bolivia, if I didn't mention it, that is the bigger threat that the U.S. sees, that, that it is – it's it is a force in in helping these poor countries take an independent path, and they really would like to get rid of, you know, the Chavez um, dream of of full integration of South America, um, in opposition, or not opposition so much, but uh, free from U.S. control, um, and that that is considered a grave threat. And so the U.S. Sees, sees an opening here to try to to topple the regime, um, and so they're exploiting that, that opportunity as we speak. Was there a attempt of a, a coup within this short period of time, or did I misread that? Well, I w- you know, there's been some talk about that. I, I don't know if that is... Fully accurate. What, what I what 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 you do see is certainly an attempt to destabilize the regime. Um, there's been violence uh, by the opposition. Uh, they've killed at least eight people, uh, burned some of the government, you know, party buildings. They've even attacked Cuban doctors. Um, so they've definitely been fomenting unrest hoping that would lead to a coup but it i wouldn't say there's been you know a full-fledged attempted coup um of course just to remind your listeners there was a successful coup against chavez in 2002 and when chavez was kidnapped and taken to an island um and the U.S., of course, immediately recognized the coup government. Of course, the U.S. now very concerned about democracy. At the time, recognized the people who kidnapped the president and 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 took over. Um, but but Chavez was returned to power within 72 days by massive protests in support of him. Uh, so they would like to see a replay of that. Uh, but I would I wouldn't say that that. Has anything like that has occurred yet? And I really do pray that that it won't. Um, but but it is an unstable situation, and and the U.S.'s refusal to recognize is making it more unstable. There's no question the opposition sees that refusal to recognize as a green light to try to make a move. Um, so we'll see. Why is the United States' recognition of the this government? So, like, why can't the rest of the world just be like, well, too bad? <laughs> it's like, why do we have so much importance on recognizing that to the rest of the world? Well, you know, because of our, and it is true that, frankly, most of the rest of the world is saying that they're recognizing Venezuela. So we're becoming more and more isolated in that. But, you know, I mean, the truth is, especially in this hemisphere, the U.S. is still the big kahuna. I mean, both militarily, of course. Economically and politically, I mean, it's still it's still thought of as kind of the the big brother, for lack of another word, and I, I mean in both the Orwellian and non-Orwellian sense. And so there is a symbol, symbolic importance there. 
you know, and if the U.S. would not recognize it, it does have symbolic value, certainly to the opposition, which really identifies with the United States. Um, but but on a practical level, you know, I you know it, it would remain to be seen what would change. I I, I certainly think we're going to still want to buy their oil because we need it. And at the moment, we have limited diplomatic relations anyway because we haven't been exchanging ambassadors for some time. It's it's too bad that they couldn't have the U.S. government could have can't somehow uh, tag the Boston bombings on the on Venezuela like they did with uh, 9/11, saying it was uh, <laughs> so they invaded Iraq, which there is no <laughs> logical connection with that. Well, it's funny. It's funny because you say that because it, you know the bombing did happen uh, literally the day after the elections. I think it was a day. It would happen Sunday or Monday because I was in Venezuela. I was focused on other things, but I believe it was Monday. Okay, so the day after the elections, and believe me, it did cross my mind. Wow, are they going to? Is this? You know, are they going to try to pin this on Venezuela? But you know, obviously that hasn't happened yet. So, uh, or and it does. It's unlikely to. I guess they're blaming it on the Chechens. Um, so, but no, it is interesting, you know, and and it is interesting what the next move of the U.S. will be. Uh, my instinct is to believe that it once things cool down, if they cool down, and I hope they do in Venezuela, the U.S. will eventually recognize. Because again, I think the I think the gambit they're playing right now is to try to destabilize Venezuela by refusing to recognize. But if they see it's not working and that the you know the government. In Venezuela is is stable. They'll they'll back off and recognize. So we'll, we'll see. Now is there there seems to be at least with the people I've conversed with a debate about whether Chavez was uh, the guy, the great hero, or some some of my friends claim that you know he would he he tried to control the media down there and that he often killed people as well and he was more of a dictator and that he uh, manipulated the elections is there truth to any of that well i mean as to the killing of people i'd never even heard that i mean i i i don't believe that to be true i i, I think the elections he won and i think he won like 12 or 13 elections because you remember there are a number of referendums against him too it you know appeared to be free and fair um he certainly had battles with the media um in part because the media definitely engaged in uh misinformation especially during the coup which helped propel the coup forward uh i'd like to see you know what the united states government would do if if, if someone you know i mean you know, one has to think a little bit about you know kind of put yourself in other people's shoes i mean if if the president of the United States were kidnapped and the media was spreading lies in order to, you know, further that. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure that president once back in office wouldn't take a bit of umbrage at that. You know, I mean, I, I it's actually I'll, I'll tell you, my, my take on it is, is that it is a revolutionary government and that it is the most benevolent revolution in in history, and, and I'm not exaggerating. I think that they have tried very hard to be a democratic society, um, to be a pluralistic society, while also trying to um, to build a socialist revolution which uh, redistributes wealth. 
to the poor, and they've done a good job of that. They've under Chavez, inequality was greatly lowered, um, poverty was greatly lowered. They have done a lot to help the poor, uh, even despite great resistance by the ruling class, the wealthier class, which again resorted even to to kidnapping and overthrowing the president for 72 hours. I mean, again, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, it's, it's an incredible thing that happened, and there were very little recriminations after that. Very few people even went to jail for doing that. Again, I would, I would welcome and urge anyone who wants to engage in coup d'etat to try that here and see what happens. See, you know, how long you can avoid being vaporized. Um, <laughs> it would be quite interesting. Um, so I don't know. I mean, my view of the situation is very different from from that view. That I think uh, I think you have a country that's really trying to do the best it can for its people against great odds. And uh, truthfully, the U.S. is trying to exploit that. It's trying to exploit its decency. You know. Um, and truthfully, that's what what many times happens with revolutions that they 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 can be pushed towards a more repressive and dictatorial kind of uh, methods and system because they get such opposition from 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 a force like the United States. You know that they decide. You know, in order to continue the revolutionary project, they need to be less democratic because the U.S. is is trying to create wedges in their society to destroy the revolution. But I'll make it clear that Venezuela has not chosen that path. They, they've tried to maintain a Western-style democracy while also building a more equal society. You know, and Chavez called that 21st century socialism. He, he did not want to follow the Soviet model. Um, again, I would note the Soviets didn't want to follow that model either. But you know, and in some you know, some ways were pushed towards it because of of, of the civil war and whatnot. Um, you know, another case in point is is Nicaragua, which had a very benevolent revolution. One of the first things they did was to um, to suspend the death penalty, even even against the the, the national guardsmen, the Somacistas, who had been torturing their people for so long. And again, what did the U.S. do? Did they say, oh, we applaud you for that? No. They they took the guys uh, who who, who uh, survived because of the Sandinistas' decency, and they brought them to Honduras and created the Contra Force and uh, committed terrorism against that country from about 1984 to 1990. Um, you know, and again, lessons are learned from that, you know, and... and but Venezuela hasn't hasn't taken from that that they should be repressive. I mean, and again, I think they deserve to be applauded. But the U.S. doesn't applaud that. You know, they they are more than happy to use that benevolence to, uh, to try to attack the government. Now, having walked like being in Venezuela, like other than the sort of the I guess the unrest due to these elections, what is the general vibe of that? Like, how is it to be there in that country? I'll be honest. I mean, one of the things I told people, you know, when I got back, including my parents and, and my friends and my wife, was that I've never been treated more kindly in my life. And and that's without exaggeration. I mean, 
uh, just the generosity that people showed us, you know, because we're foreigners in their country and we're sniffing around their election process and we're going in, right? We're going into their polls and asking people questions and watching people vote. I don't know how Americans would feel about that. You know, some guy from whatever, Venezuela showed up at their poll and decided to cross-examine them about their system. But people there were very kind, and I, I'm, 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 I'm emotionally, you know, on the one hand, very moved in a good way by that generosity, but also moved to anger because of the, the the lies that are being spread about those people who were so nice to me. And it hurts me to read this stuff that's being put out about Venezuela because those people deserve better. You know, they're good people. Um, and I wish their project great success. I, I think it's a model for a lot of us, you know, and uh, – you know, I'll be honest. I think if, if that revolution goes down, I think we will all be worse off for it. Uh, it's interesting that, I mean, in any of the news I've watched or read about uh, the elections, you do not hear anything about the process that they go about. I mean, that is a pretty intricate process. It's like our, it makes ours look very shoddy with, I mean, and are, are those... I'm very suspicious of our computerized voting in in this country. And as, yeah, I was, yeah, well, yeah, and again, you know, quoting Jimmy Carter again in the same statement Carter put out when she said Venezuela's was the best system in the world. He actually said that comparing it to the U.S. system, which he found not to be so good. I mean, we've had you know we had the 2000 and 2004 elections, you know, both of which you know had you know, claims that, that those, you know, that those elections were stolen. You look at Kennedy, Nixon as well, where Kennedy won by 0.1%. And, you know, it's just a truism that the Democrats were stealing votes in Chicago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, I mean, right? I mean, not everyone knows that, right? That's not that's not a controversial statement either. But again, but, but what, what's good for the goose is not good for the gander. You know, they, they're trying to actually... You know, have an airtight democratic system, and and we won't give them any any credit for that. It's it's disturbing to me. It, as I said, it 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 hurts my heart to hear these things about about Venezuela. Uh, and just to to switch gears, because I want to talk about the 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 other situation that I frankly was completely unaware of until uh, you uh, started writing some articles about what's going on in the Congo. And uh, I forget what the name of the documentary I just watched, which you can, uh, do you know the name of the documentary? Was it maybe Crisis in the Congo? Yes. Was that the one? Yeah. Which is, uh, uh, you can see that on some website for for free, but um, six million people have been slaughtered or and, and killed since 1996, which is a, a, a staggering and it's 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 I mean it's hard to believe in the United States is completely and the media for the most part is turning a, a blind eye to this. Yeah, at best a blind eye. I mean, in the case of the U.S., I mean the U.S. was really very much behind what happened there because we, I mean, from the very beginning because we supported Paul Kagame's 
incursion from first of all we trained Paul Kagami at Fort Leavenworth okay we supported he and his uh, troops uh, to go from Uganda into Rwanda to uh, take power there and then we continued to support him full well knowing of his plans to go into the Congo which he did do he's still there and again, the result being the murder of at least 6 million. I've seen figures as high as 8 million people. Massive rape of women there. And we still um, support Paul Kagame, who's now president of, of Rwanda. Not only support him, but he's held out as this great um, liberator. I, I mean, it's one of the most stunning stories of disinformation that I've ever um ever witnessed in my life um but that that's that's a, a fact yeah, I, I know i i believe our government I, from according to that some i think some of the articles of yours i read and whatnot was we give rwanda two about 200 million a year yes for their military the, yeah, well, we were giving about $200 million for the military. The one thing we did do, do due to some pressure, we have cut out the direct military aid as of, I guess, last end of, near the end of last year, last fall, because of pr some pressure. But we're continuing to give them all sorts of uh, economic aid as well, which, again, allows them to continue doing what they're doing uh, in the Congo. And, and in fact, I'll, I'll tell you a little story, an interesting story about this um, and about this disinformation and whatnot. I, I was just actually found out about this yesterday. There's a guy who had lived in Pittsburgh for some time. He's a Rwandan, and his name is Leopold Munyakazi. He actually taught uh, French here in Pittsburgh. Um, he he was here with his family and, and doing fine and seeking asylum. And then once he started to speak out publicly against what happened in Rwanda, he began to question the usual, you know, the U.S. narrative that Paul Kagame, you know, saved people from genocide as opposed to being a genocider himself. And he began to question this. And as soon as he did that, the Rwandan government issued an arrest warrant for him because it's illegal in Rwanda to question the narrative of the genocide. And he's now being deported. He has a de deportation hearing next week, and he'll be deported back to Rwanda, and uh, he will be killed uh, when he gets back there. And again, that that's, you know, the result of this narrative, which um, uh, which continues to be promoted. That is, that's uh, heartbreaking. Does he have, like, Wife and uh, and children in the United his States. wife and children here, and they they are going to stay here. They they are going to uh, most likely get their asylum, but their father and husband is going to be sent back to Rwanda, probably to certain death. Again, because he spoke out against what happened there, um, and questioned uh, questioned what people claimed happened in Rwanda. It's a, it's an incredible. Um, Again, story, and even if you ever see the Hotel Rwanda uh, with Don Cheadle, um, the gentleman he plays actually has come out. I did an interview with him, and he he takes issue even with the narrative of the movie because the narrative of the movie is that 
the Paul Kagame forces come in and save everyone and they're the good guys and the genocide ends. And he says, no, that's not true. You know, how is he, how is he being able to speak out without them coming after him? Oh, they have. They, they, they've, uh, he had to flee uh, Rwanda because of his statements in that regard. Um, and I talked to him, I, and he was clear he, he didn't want me to tell people where he is. But anyways, he's not in Rwanda anymore. And, and this is a hero, you know. This is a human rights hero. But because he said that the Kagame forces were, were carrying out war crimes, um, you know, the government there turned against him. And what what is the United States' interest in the Congo? Um, well, the, the, the Congo is probably the richest, uh, most re- resource-rich country on the earth. They have massive amount of gold and platinum. They have uh, raw materials that are, are used for cell phones and computers, some of which you can't get anywhere else in the world. Um, we have massive interest there. And so what we've done is allowed uh, the Rwandans to kind of do our dirty work to support these armed militias there, um, to plunder the Congo, and to help us plunder it as well of, of these resources. We wouldn't have cell phones if we if we couldn't um, – you know, get get at some of those minerals. Although, of course, as my kids always, you know, kids are always kind of insightful. Uh, they always say stuff like, well, why don't we just offer to buy it? I mean, I'm sure they'll sell it to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's such a reasonable question. Uh, it's almost absurd. But, of course, they would. But that's not the point. The point is that we, we don't just want the resources. We want our companies to be able to profit from it and all that. So... They also have uh, some of the biggest, you know, kind of acreage of of rainforest in the world as well. I mean, it's just an incredible – it's an incredible country of riches, which, of course, there is this resource curse, which they've been cursed with. Because they have so many resources, the world has plundered it. Before it was us, uh, it was the Belgians. You know, a great book is King King Leopold's Ghost, about how King Leopold and the Belgians plundered the Congo, uh, mostly of rubber, and they killed 10 million Congolese. And, you know, so you got 10 million under King Leopold, you got another six to eight now. I mean, you're looking at massive... Uh, genocide on a, on a massive scale, and it's barely discussed. I will note, just, you know, again, as an interesting historic thing, is that um, two people who spoke out against King Leopold's plunder and in, in, in murder, mass murder in the Congo were uh, authors Mark Twain and Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes um, uh books uh they were very vocal against uh against that and actually did end up helping cut to 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 end that situation there wow, that's pretty in the congo it, it, it it's astounding to me and I, I don't know if it's because i've become more aware of it or but the 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 connection between our uh, our government protecting corporate profit and almost as like Chris Hedges uh, 
theorizes is that we've had a corporate coup d'etat. And it, it almost seems like, <clears throat> excuse me, that they don't even try to hide it much anymore, the, the, the marriage of corporation and government. I mean, it's just like, it just, I feel like they're just going, fuck you, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> it's like... Yeah, well, I think that's true. I think, and it's kind of happened a bit gradually, and so, you know, people, I guess, are able to accept it in a certain way. And they're able to accept it, too, at least they have been up till now, because largely, you know, people in this country have still largely been able to live pretty well. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of hungry in this country, a lot of homeless, a lot of poor um, but the vast majority do quite well, you know, and, you know, we, I always give the figure, we have less than 5% of the, of the world's population and yet use over 30% of its resources. I mean, we, we live very well, very comfortably, um, compared to the rest of the world, or at least, you know, 80% of us do. And so I think that given that people are kind of like, uh, okay, you know, yeah, maybe the corporations, own everything and maybe they do terrible things with the help of our military but you know I'm living okay so you know what what uh, you know so I guess I'll go watch a watch a football game I don't know <laughs> it's amazing to me too because the uh, observation I made recently is if you are in a social s- setting and you're and if you're going to say anti something anti corporate a lot of times people like are like now I'm not against capitalism like they have like they've somehow worked it into our brains that like all, like corporate corp, uh, capitalism is like this saving grace and it's it's really weird that people like have to always like say like say something like I'm not against capitalism cuz like it's if we go against capitalism we're like fucking evil commies or something I said, well, I think that's exactly right. It's a religion. There's no question. It's a religion, and and the view is, yeah, that that, that capitalism equals democracy, and we're of course democratic. So yeah, we we must embrace it. I mean, there's no question. I mean, there is no outside a very few group, you know, small group of people in this country. People are, as you say, opposed to even questioning. Uh, whether capitalism is is the right system, because again, it's imbued with these, or they believe it to be imbued with all these other characteristics: democracy, Christianity. You know, bizarre. It's bizarre to me, but again, for most people, it's not. It's just instinctual almost that they believe that now. I mean, the ideology has been very powerful in this country, um, and and it's led to very little little questioning of what's going on. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 pretty terrifying, <laughs> and uh, I don't. I, but to, to get back though, just to uh, uh, the Congo real quick, is there is the is there any sort of pressure going on from other countries to to stop this? Because it's like you really don't hear anything, and it's it seems like people should be yelling about this. Yeah, well, and there's not much pressure there. It, and it's not from any other countries. It's all coming from within the U.S. There, there are a number of uh, human rights groups that are putting some pressure on Obama to to change that situation. As I said, there has been some impact. They were able to get some 
as you say, I think it was about $200 million in military uh, aid. I think it was going to their military academy cut off. Um, they got Obama to at least make a call to Paul Kagame to say, uh, you know, maybe it's good if you stop killing people. Um, I, I don't know what good that did. But in any case, yeah, there is some pressure, but there's not nearly enough is the point. There's not nearly enough because people don't even know what's happening. They have no – I mean there's probably less than 1% of the U.S. population knows, one, that there's that sort of violence happening there. And the two, the U.S. has something to do with it. They, it's, it's not in the press. It's never in the press. Um you know, and it is interesting. Well, you know, in, in when we've talked before, I always cite Noam Chomsky, and um, who talks about the fact that there are worthy and unworthy victims, and the and the worthy victims are are people subjected to human rights abuses by our enemies. So, for example, people being abused by Syria, who whose regime we would like to topple, you hear about them every single day, right? But then there's unworthy victims like those in the Congo and they're unworthy because they're victims of us and given that we don't want you to hear about them we're not going to give you a daily dose of atrocities in the Congo because we're behind it and we don't want you to know that and and you know it's hard for people to believe that they think oh that can't be true we live in this free society with a free press and there isn't express censorship in this country but you, you will see that the press, you know, largely goes along with the State Department line about how the world works. And, it, you know, it's a very intricate system that's set up to, to kind of promote that. And I would just refer listeners to the book uh, Manufacturing Consent by uh, Noam Chomsky and Edward S. Herman that, that goes through in detail how they, you know, uh, think the system works to create that type of disparate treatment of the so-called worthy and unworthy victims. So there's a whole chapter in there, for example, which is fascinating, about – okay, they give an example. when There, there was one Polish priest killed in, in Poland when it was still communist, I believe in the 1980s, and that got huge ink in the papers every day. By the way, the people who killed the priest – they were they were arrested, prosecuted, and put in jail. Okay, then they compare that to the scores of priests and even archbishop and archbishop Archbishop Romero and nuns killed in Latin America by forces that the U.S. was funding. Scores of them. And they they showed that the killing of the one Polish priest got greater, much greater attention in the press than the murder of the scores of Catholic priests and the archbishop in Latin America. And even though in those cases, the murderers almost invariably were never tried and never prosecuted and never put in jail. And so you look at Colombia, for example, and I've been writing a bit about this recently, in Colombia alone, again, Colombia being the number one ally of the U.S. in the hemisphere, we support their military, we support their government. Eighty Catholic priests have been killed in that country since 1984. Eighty. And three bishops. 
Have you ever heard of that fact? No. <laughs> it's not never. Never. Because again, uh the regime that's doing it is is the regime the US supports. Meanwhile, you know, in next door in Venezuela, they're the ones that are undemocratic and in Colombia uh, that's murdering priests is somehow democratic. It's incredible. It's 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 stunning. I mean, the propaganda is thick and it's effective. And is there like an equivalent? Because a lot of the atrocities that are going on in South America or Latin America are those militaries have been trained by the School of Americas and often in like they have torture guides. It do is there, yes. is there an equivalent of that like say with like because we were giving Rwanda two hundred million dollars and I, you said uh, I, the 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 one guy was trained at Fort Knox did you say I, or, Leavenworth for in Le- in Kansas yeah and but is it is that do we have sort of same programs like that for governments like Rwanda as well I don't know that we have actual schools you know just for them like the School of the Americas. But again, yeah, we do train them in various, you know, places um, around the world. Um, and again, in terms of correlation between abuses and training, Colombia, which has the worst human rights in the hemisphere by far, if you look at, you know, numbers of people killed and jailed by their governments, no one's close. I mean, I want to make that clear. Cuba isn't close. No one. The more of the uh, military leaders of Colombia have been trained by the U.S. at the School of the Americas than any other country in the hemisphere. And again, why? Because the correlation is that they're trained to torture people. And in the, in the, in the case of the priests, it, it, it's been noted that, in fact, at it, 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 the School of the Americas, they have these exercises. They train the military, and the, the you know they have these exercises at the base where they pretend to subdue a village. And it's been noted that um, most of the time, the you know the the priest in the village play, being played by the chaplain there is either beaten up or killed by the end of their exercise. Wow. What what is the importance of militarily of beating up a bishop? Well, because at least for a time, I mean, what what really motivated the U.S. was that after Vatican II was the emergence of what was called liberation theology, which was a very radical Catholic movement, uh, which combined Christianity and Marxism, and which basically said, look, we're not we're not going to wait to heaven for the poor to get their reward. That we have to work for social justice here. And we need to to work politically to make sure that the poor are taken care of and that the poor even organize themselves to bring about political change, which will give them a greater share of the wealth. This is very threatening to the United States. So, in fact, they targeted liberation theology for destruction in the School of the Americas, in fact – one of the things they, they've publicly bragged about the fact that they destroyed liberation theology in Latin America. They're, they're, not, they're not shy about saying that because they saw it as a threat. And so it's very natural then that they would actually encourage the militaries that they support to kill liberation priests and even liberation bishops. Um, 
Oh, that's pretty fascinating. But again, it's just not it's nothing. It's not for pleasant conversation or any apparently because you know you won't read about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing that uh, Obama because we talked about Obama a lot uh, the first interview and that was uh, right before the elections, I believe. And I think a lot of people were hoping that Obama would uh, go to a little bit more to the left in his second term and it seems he's going much further to the right is would you agree with that uh yes 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 he is i mean and why is that i mean first of all a lot of people you know i voted for him very enthusiastically in 2008 and was one of the people thought he would he would be more progressive and more peaceful in his foreign policy etc of course, there were people at the time who I think had been proven right who said, nah, it's, he's not going to be, that he's a corporatist, and there's some evidence of that, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but even with that said, I think he's been worse than probably anyone had, had dreamed of. And I, I think part of it is because he is a deeply conservative person. I mean, I, I really do. I mean, he claimed he was going to channel Ronald Reagan. I mean, he did kind of give us a little forewarning, and he certainly has done that. But I think also... Part of the part of how he is, especially in terms of foreign policy, is at least as much a function of the system as it is of, of his personal views. I mean, there is a huge, you know, embedded system of of a military overblown military and private, you know, military contractors um, that exists and that feeds off the system and that and that and that encourages the system to be aggressive. So. Of course, President Eisenhower himself, a general, called it, you know, the military-industrial complex. And he warned that this military-industrial complex was a threat to democracy because it had a logic of its own and had great amounts of power. And I think whatever that military-industrial complex looked like in the 1950s when Eisenhower said that, it's even greater now. And so I think, you know, you have the combination of, of Obama, who I think is pretty conservative to begin with, but also facing this military-industrial complex that he probably has little control over. And so the result is the fact that he's probably, in terms of foreign policy, as right-wing as George W. Bush, if you look at what he does, you know. Oh, yeah. the I mean, he escalated the drone attacks, like, immensely. <laughs> Yeah, he. Yeah, this is largely his program. Um, he, without even asking Congress, you know, in violation of the War Powers Act, he overthrew the government in Libya. Right. Um, he has supported two coup governments in Latin America, Honduras, and, and Paraguay. And again, you know, kind of belying his, his, his sincerity of his interest in in democracy in Venezuela. He's been terrible. He's absolutely awful. Said he'd shut down Guantanamo. He hasn't shut down Guantanamo. Um, he's just been absolutely terrible. And again, for the reasons I said, um, I have no faith in him whatsoever. Yeah, it's, I mean, if anything, his, because I very excitedly voted for him the first term too, and the second the second round I didn't, uh, he did not get my vote. <laughs> but it's, it, I'm, it just says to me, his presidency says there. There's very little between the two parties. They both have the same uh, uh, goal, which is 
at corporate profit. And they had pe- sometimes people think you're crazy for saying that, but it's just like, I mean, you know, people trust the FDA, and it's like, nope, Monsanto guy putting that. You know, it's just like it's all so intermingled that it's just it's disgusting to me. Yeah, no, I, I think you you are facing a situation in which you know. For me, I, it's hard for me to characterize it as a democratic system. I mean, if if it's if if you mean by democratic, you know, government, you know, of the people, by the people, and for the people, I think it is it is none of those three. Just with the the gun law that just uh, that the the background check law, it's like the majority of the countries and even NRA members were for that and it's just it's like nope we're going to we're going to vote in favor of the NRA it's like it's amazing yeah and i think i think it's even even more seen in like the budget discussions where there's almost a collusion between the two parties you know this kind of uh well like for example i mean to me it was very interesting that one again going back to libya that obama was willing to uh, violate the War Powers Act and, and engage in that military action without even talking to Congress. But then, if you recall, later in the summer, when faced with us coming up against the debt limit, which many said he had the constitutional power to raise on his own, he wouldn't do that. Instead, he, you know, and by not doing it, claimed to be forced into a, a, a compromise with the Republicans in which they agreed to the sequester, right? That's how the sequester gets agreed to. He's not willing to use his executive authority to raise a debt limit. Instead, he, he used it on war. And then they enter into discussions as a result for the sequester, and they agree to a sequester. And then, you know, he later claims, oh, hey, as he's signing, by the way, he still had to implement the sequester, even right this year. Um, and he says, oh, I, I, my hands are tied. I'm, I have to do this because the Republicans, well, that's complete nonsense. He, he, you know, the Democrats and Republicans agreed to the sequester. He, he didn't do what he had to do to even prevent that discussion. You know, and, and again, so it's a system where you have the two parties who basically agree on what they want to do. But, it, you know, they go through this dance where they're able to kind of blame each other for the failures of both. You know, it's hard to call that a democracy. It's 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 a it's kind of an agreed to stalemate in which the only people who win are those who already have all the money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's musical chairs and the music has stopped and the rich people have the chairs and we have none. So there you have it. Yeah, I was uh, the one concern I had too uh, post this uh, Boston bombing is. I I feel like our government, and specifically Obama, seems to have really used all the, the war, supposed war on terror, to really walk all over a great deal of our civil civil liberties, like with the NDAA Act and CISPA and all these things. And I'm like, is this? I mean, like, here's one more reason they get to manipulate these these laws, and it's it's that's how that's why I was like, please be crazy, white people, who blew that shit up because I was like. You know, if it's foreign terrorists, then it just gives them more reason to, you know, fuel the fear. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think all of us were hoping it was two crazy white guys. Um, 
I guess it's better. It looks like it's probably a couple crazy Chechnyans, and since Americans don't even know where Chechnya is, uh, maybe it'll be maybe it'll be hard, harder to kind of manipulate that into, in, into you know some sort of a bigger crackdown on someone. But um, I guess that remains to be seen. But yeah, the constitutional professor that that Obama, you know, of course was. Has done more to cut back on civil liberties and constitutional protections than any president. I mean, he's he has seen George Bush in that regard, and he's raised him. Um, it's really you know with, with the most maybe extreme thing he's done is you know for him to announce that we have the right to um, to kill even Americans uh, with drones without any due process, without trial. It's incredible. And again, that there's been no moral outrage is just shocking. It's interesting because when he was running for president, the first time there was all those rumors of uh, of his death squads, but it was all like he's going to kill the elderly. <laughs> and it's like right, oh. right, the death panels, right, the yeah, death yes. panels, right. But and but then he's got his kill list every Tuesday, and it's pr- pretty remarkable. And you don't hear yeah. Rachel Maddow talk about that subject either. <laughs> No, well, liberals, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, it, it is an, an opportunism, and I, I really – it's why I don't consider myself a liberal because the liberals have largely said, oh, well, if Obama does it, then we're not going to criticize it. I mean, that's been the position. If Bush had done these things, of course, he did do some of them, but not all, but we were willing to criticize. We were willing to march in the street against him. Obama does it, and it's like, oh, well, by definition, I guess it's okay. Yeah, or you know, or the other guy's so much worse. We're just not going to say boo. I mean, which is an absurd moral position to take, and and but it's been taken with such you know to such extremes that you know he's been able to walk all over um, our rights and 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 embroil us in, in various and sundry aggressive actions abroad and. With impunity. No one has said anything. It's been a disaster. I, I frankly think he, he ended up, in retrospect, being the worst option we could have had because he's given uh, a kind face to very awful things. Yeah. Cornell West uh, recently took some shots at him, which I was very – he called him a Rockefeller Republican. Yeah, and I think that's – I think that is uh, – Fair again. I, I Obama himself has said that you know Reagan was his kind of model, and he was not lying. I mean, I think the Reagan revolution never ended. I mean, that's just a fact. Clinton continued it. You know, the Bushes continued it, and so is Obama. I mean, that the, that reactionary politics. I mean, frankly, it's so bad that Nixon looks pretty damn good right now. And and I say that you know a bit tongue in cheek, but but I also say it truthfully. I mean. Uh, he was much more progressive domestically than any of these people. And he, he listened he, to protests, for sure. Well, he was afraid of them, yeah. I mean, I guess that was good. He he was afraid of them. He did listen to them. And he did terrible things abroad, of course. You know, he stepped up the Vietnam War and then expanded it into Cambodia and Laos. Um, uh, and, of course, supported the overthrow of Allende in Chile. And he supported the fascist uh, junta in Argentina. I mean, he did terrible things abroad, but, I mean, domestically, he was actually quite good. We actually could have had national health care under Nixon. You know that. How could uh, that have been? It, How did that get killed? Uh, the AFL-CIO killed that oh. uh, for two reasons. One, they didn't want to give – again, they didn't want to give the Republican the win. Brilliant idea, right? Yeah. 
Uh, and two, they saw it in their self-interest to kill it because they wanted to uh, – one of the things that they sold to prospective members in organizing drives is, we'll get you health care. Well, if everyone had health care – they were afraid they wouldn't be able to organize well. So, you know, now as we stand here today in 2013, we have neither health care uh, nor uh, many unions. So, you know, discuss amongst yourselves. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, it's going to be interesting because you – to see what Obama is like post his presidential uh, years because you wrote that article about how uh, they called Jimmy Carter the human rights – uh, president, but like he was actually pulled some shitty stuff while he was president as well, like the giving uh, Russia their own Vietnam War. Right, in Afghanistan, right, that he, according to Brzezinski, who was his national security um, advisor, that, um, that, right, he admitted that we actually fired the first shot in Afghanistan and in, in order to draw the Russians in, not in response to the Russians, which is most people think... And again, one other you know thing is that you know Archbishop Romero, who many consider to be saint uh, in El Salvador, he was killed by by forces being funded by the U.S. under Carter, not Reagan. Even I forget that sometimes. It was in 1980 before Reagan was elected, and it was very shortly after Archbishop Romero wrote to President Carter and begged him to stop supporting the Salvadoran military that was killing his people. And Carter never responded, and 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 and, and Archbishop Romero himself is, were, was killed by those very forces while saying mass. Um, so yeah, I mean, but yeah, that's the human rights president. Uh, now, of course, I do think as an ex-president, he's certainly been decent, and I think probably because he feels bad about what he did well, as president, or I'd like to think so anyway. But um, well, let's hope Obama yeah, feels bad. Yeah, we'll see what Obama does. He'll he'll probably work for, I don't know, Goldman Sachs or something when he's out of office. Wouldn't be shocking. And uh, there's one question I, I've always wanted to ask you. I, I meant to ask you on the last show, and it didn't because and for the people who are listening that may have not heard the original one, that you were uh, one of the lawyers who campaigned uh, the, uh, to the lawsuit against Coca-Cola for paramilitaries in Colombia killing union organizers. And I was just like, I used to love Coca-Cola and drink it a lot. Not a lot, but like I liked it with Chinese food for sure. But I haven't touched it since, uh, since I saw that documentary about it. And I'm just, oh wow, uh, well I'm impressed. I'm very impressed, man. I mean, it must great. drive you crazy to see it every. I mean, have you were did, were you a fan of it bef before that horribleness? Oh yeah, I used to tell the uh, opposing lawyers that the Coke lawyers. I used to say I have nothing against your product. I actually prefer it to the other one, you know. Uh, but yeah, no, it would definitely, you definitely, um, I liked it, you know. But that it's not good for you anyway. So it wasn't no. wasn't so hard to give up. Yeah, but, I just uh, uh, I can't even if somebody offers it to me and I'm like, well, you didn't pay for it, but I'm like, I just can't. I don't want to give anything to those motherfuckers. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that's a good, a good uh, motivation. Ab absolutely, and uh, as I said, I'm, I applaud you for taking that position. Yeah, I, I, I become the real downer sometimes at parties because people will be like, you know, and I'll be like, well, you know, they, uh, they, they kill people. <laughs> it's like, 
People don't like to hear that when they're mid-party. No, or, or any time. I mean, we do tend to be labeled as kind of downers because we talk about these things, but... I've caught myself constantly, like, I've caught myself a couple times, like, you're that guy who ruins everything now because you've got to point out what is going on. <laughs> it's like, it's like, just no one can enjoy a party. But it's important. I mean, we even, even myself, I have to remind myself sometimes what's happening in the world. I mean, you kind of have to keep that scab open because otherwise it is easy to forget and to forget the terrible things that are being done in our name, you know, and I think it's worth, you know, always reminding ourselves of that. And, but also I think the important thing is to do something about it. And if you do, if you do something about it, it's not depressing. It's not depressing at all. In fact, it's quite liberating. And I think it is, it is depressing to just focus on the evil, you know, and not fight it. But if you're fighting it, there is a certain satisfaction you get from that. I mean, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life after I realized what was happening in the world, but also took at least some steps to fight it. And I, I'm not, wouldn't claim I've been successful or, or whatever, but at least I've tried, you know, in my own modest way. And I'm, I feel happy because of that. I think it's a good life to lead and a, a good life to choose, you know. Yeah, I used to uh, be very. My pursuits were very selfish, and uh, and once I sort of was like, you know, that's real bullshit. <laughs> it's like that you're gonna. That's always gonna leave you empty, and and started pursuing other avenues. And I I now try to do a lot of uh, fundraiser shows and whatnot, and it's uh, it just feels way better than just doing a regular comedy show. It's like, oh, I've used my connections and power to do something <laughs> power not that i have any power <laughs> well no and i think you're right i think you've discovered what a lot of us have discovered and it is the paradox that the that that uh, the less you focus on your own happiness the happier you will be and i learned that as a kid my mom told me once and i always remind her of this which drives her crazy because she she thinks, you know, I'm a crazy radical and all. And, and, and I always say, well, Mom, you know, a lot of it came from you told me when I was depressed as a kid. She used to tell me, well, you're, it's because you're thinking too much about yourself. Think about someone else. I said, you were right, Mom. <laughs> and I'm happy now, you know. So To wrap up, uh, people can read your articles on the Huffington Post, Counterpunch, and uh, where else? I'm forgetting some. Those are that's those are the two main ones. If you if you go there, you will pretty much find everything that I that I write. And uh, you you what is your Twitter for everybody? So I think they should follow. Oh me. yeah, at at Daniel M Kavalik. And I will definitely uh, be attaching that to all show posts. So great. Oh, and I have to thank you, Matt. And I do want your listeners to to hear me thank you because you encouraged me to get on Twitter, and it, you know really has increased my readership multifold. Oh, good. And and so I owe you that because I was very reluctant to do that. I actually had been on it. I got off and you said, no, 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 you should get back on. This is good for you. And it has been good for me. So, so your advice was very well taken. <laughs> well, I'm glad I could help. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. 
If you enjoyed the show, please tell friends about it, tweet about it, Tumblr about it, Facebook about it. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Dwyer at Twitter.com. Also, uh, if you enjoyed the show and you got some, don't want to spend some dough at Starbucks and you're like, hey, you know what, I'm going to make coffee at home and save the two bucks, donate me the two bucks. So Dustin Marshall and I, the guy who uh, produces and edits these, we can all eat some food, pay some rent, and uh, buy some sweet food. Anyway, um, also, if you can't afford to donate, and you're, but you're going to buy some stuff on Amazon, you can go to my page at feralaudio.com, go through my Amazon link, I get a kickback in that money that you spent. Uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but uh, I bought me a box of macaroni and cheese, I could use that. Uh, also, uh, explore some of the other shows on feralaudio.com, and I want to thank you very much for listening to my show and fight the power.
branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.